Scott here with another episode of the History Unplugged podcast. The most powerful non-elected person in modern American history is arguably J. Edgar Hoover, who led the FBI for 48 years. Today, he's remembered as a paranoid, secretive power monger who kept files on everyone and would blackmail them if necessary, and also for his purported tendency to cross-dress. But he was much more than a one-dimensional tyrant and schemer who strong-armed the rest of the country into submission. As FBI director from 1924 to his death in 1972, he was a confidant, counselor, and adversary to eight U.S. presidents. He became director of the FBI as a wide-eyed wonderkind, full of optimism and progressive ideas about using the state to transform society in a good way. He had many early career successes, taking down bank robbers like John Dillinger, and later rooting out communist spies like the Rosenbergs. In the 1950s, millions of Americans admired him, and his approval rating reached as high as 98%. But his star fell when it was discovered he launched the COINTEL program, a series of covert and illegal projects to infiltrate domestic American political organizations, including anti-Vietnam war organizers, civil rights groups, and many others. To talk about Hoover's complicated legacy is today's guest Beverly Gage, author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. We look at why he was so successful, why he was felled by his own hubris, and the reason Hoover was so powerful is because he reflected the ideals of many people in the administrative state. Hope you enjoyed this discussion with Beverly Gage. And one more thing before we get started with this episode, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'd like to start off with an episode at the end of Hoover's career that sounds very strange in 2022, but it speaks to the half century of goodwill that he built up as the FBI director. In 1964, he denounced Martin Luther King Jr. as, quote, the country's most notorious liar, unquote. And what's interesting is that 50% of Americans supported him over the 16% that supported MLK. Why was he so popular at the time? And because this stat sounds strange to us today, what does it say about the change in attitudes toward Hoover and the FBI in the last 50 years? I think one of the most surprising things about the book, and for me, one of the most surprising things in researching Hoover is, as you suggest, that he was really popular for most of his career. And that poll captured for me some of the paradoxes of American history and just how much has changed since that moment in 1964. So I think in our world, Hoover is one of the greatest villains of the 20th century. And of course, Martin Luther King is one of our greatest heroes. But if you look back into this moment in history, you can see that actually the story was a lot more complicated. So Hoover, by 1964, had already been FBI director for 40 years. And a huge part of his career as director was in building up the reputation of the FBI and therefore building up his own reputation. And that happened in a couple of different ways. He had an enormous PR wing that was there basically to advertise the FBI, to write fake columns for him that he himself did not write. 
he was very strategic about reaching out to popular constituencies that he thought would support him. So organizations like the American Legion. So the FBI actually really had sort of its own grassroots support team. And then finally, he was really an outspoken cultural figure. And for many Americans, he stood for two different sets of values. On the one hand, you know, the idea of a kind of professional federal investigative force that was going to tell the truth. And on the other hand, a crusading conservative voice that on issues like race and religion and social order and law and order was really very persuasive and popular for many Americans. And I think all of those things are really captured in this moment when Hoover, many people would have said, was the public hero and Martin Luther King himself was much, much more controversial. It is a bit of a different world and it's worth entering into. The two of us were talking before we hit record that all that's really left of Hoover's legacy is he's seen as the symbol of shadowy extra constitutional force in the United States, or he was a crossdresser, which listeners will get into that. But don't worry, we're not going to focus solely on that. Let's go back to the beginning of his career, which lasts an extraordinarily long time. And that is following the First World War and the first Red Scare. What are the early years of his career like when the FBI is in the embryonic form of what it will later become. One of my big goals with this book, as you're suggesting, was to kind of get away from this image of Hoover as this kind of rogue actor behind the scenes doing bad things, this kind of uniquely bad individual that had he not been there, you know, we would have had a very different history. So I do think it's true <laughs> that if Hoover hadn't been there, we would have had a very different history. But what I wanted to do was to really situate himself within a much bigger story that is about American political ideas, the way that we govern ourselves, the nature of democracy, and then the nature of policing and political intelligence within that democracy. And so there are two big themes that the book really gets at. One is this theme of Hoover as someone who kind of came of age in a progressive tradition that was about the growth of the administrative state, about career government service, about the need to have a whole wing of the government that stood outside of electoral politics that was going to be full of experts, a well-running bureaucracy, in his case, investigators who would, you know, not be subject necessarily to what the Republicans wanted or the Democrats wanted, but would be able to deliver and compile real information about important things. He also had a strain that was deeply conservative, and we don't usually see these ideas go together, you know, kind of building up the state and being a hardcore conservative. But really, the main issue of his life was anti-communism and the struggle against the Soviet Union, but especially uh, communist and left-wing groups within the United States. And I think what's interesting about his early life is that you see both of these things being formed very quickly and really having lasting power for most of his career. So he was born in Washington, D.C. in 1895 to a government family. 
That was pretty unusual at the time. Washington isn't a very big city in the late 19th century. The federal government itself is not that big, but he's very much a creature of that world and of those traditions of government service. And then on the other hand, once he goes into the Justice Department very quickly, after he graduates from law school in 1917, he is swept up in one of the first great anti-radical and anti-communist purges in the U.S. And so you can see his commitments to anti-communism being formed very early on. At age 24, he becomes the head of something called the Radical Division in the Justice Department. And he's basically policing left-wing radicals from his earliest years. And so you see both of these traditions already coming together when he's a very, very young man. I'd like to focus on a point you made there that was very interesting, that he is, in many ways, the New Deal man, the idea of pushing forth government reforms with expertise and technocracy, science, data-driven approaches, which the New Deal, in many ways, is sort of the, the final victory of early 20th century progressivism over, I don't know, classical, small government, constitutional views of what the government should be. And Hoover is riding that wave. What did the FBI look like in the 1920s when he's reforming it? But really, it's just more kind of internal things that aren't visible. And how does he ride that New Deal wave to expand the FBI? One of the incredible things about his career is, is just how long it lasted. So he became head of this tiny organization called the Bureau of Investigation in 1924, and then he just kept that job for the next 48 years. And he died in the same job in 1972. And lots and lots of things change and occur along the way. But when he came to that job in 1924, he sort of came in as a reformer. The Bureau was in kind of bad repute for corruption, for violations of civil liberties, and this young man, he is still in his 20s at that point, um, is brought in to kind of clean things up, make the bureaucracy run properly, make sure that he had a group of, as he would describe it, sort of upstanding expert gentlemen who could conduct real objective investigations. And that's what he spends most of the 20s doing, is trying to put new policies in place, hire people, mostly uh, pretty conservative white men who he thinks are going to be his model agents. And in some ways, he's just there in the right moment when in the 1930s, the federal government begins to expand at such a rapid pace. And when the New Deal comes along, he's just very much a part of it. He changes the name of the bureau to the FBI, right? One of these kind of three-letter New Deal acronyms. He is part of this big expansion of federal power. And in the case of the FBI, what that means is they really get the ability to make arrests, to carry weapons, and particularly to move into new areas of law enforcement where the federal government hadn't had any role before kidnapping, bank robbery, a lot of these very high profile, very flashy crimes with pretty famous criminal adversaries like John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd and the Barker Gang. And that in many ways is the moment that he becomes a kind of national celebrity, a really public figure for the first time. But it is absolutely the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt in particular, who give him a lot of the power that he wields for the rest of his life. 
I'd like to look at his early victories, the capture of John Dillinger, because you note that on the one hand, his views, his philosophy of government and policing don't appear to change that much over the 50 years he leads the FBI. But on the other hand, he's remarkably flexible when it comes to new methods of policing, evolving from 1920s forms of policing, which is much more provincial, up to dealing with bank robberies, up to nationwide programs of counter-espionage and going against the Soviets to the highest levels of intelligence you can imagine. He's remarkably flexible in that way. But let's look at what are the problems that he faces with bank robberies that are different in its form of crime than what came before, and how is he successful? Yeah, he has this really interesting sort of paradox where on the one hand, he has these key principles and these key ideas that you can see he develops as a very young man and he holds on to for his whole life. On the other hand, the nature of his job is that he often has to learn radically new things and adapt the FBI, adapt himself, adapt his bureaucracy to new challenges as they come along. And he couldn't have stayed in his job for so long if he hadn't had that adaptability, that flexibility. And in fact, certainly when he was a young man, most people in Washington knew him best for precisely that, that he was a kind of energetic, fast talker, a quick study, someone who was able to kind of sense what was needed and turn on a dime. In the 1930s, the big problem is violent crime particularly bank robberies, also kidnappings. And we tend to you know, think about the New Deal as being mostly about labor or social welfare or things like that. But actually, the war on crime was a huge part of what was happening during those years and was a big part of Franklin Roosevelt's agenda. You know, the idea being that without actually maintaining some form of of law and order, you weren't going to be able to provide security and safety, make people feel that their federal government was watching out for them. So Hoover is in that mix, and it's a big challenge for him because these new forms of crime have some really new features to them. One is that automobiles have come in, and that means that criminals, lawbreakers can cross state lines very fast and without a set of law enforcement agencies that can cross state lines with equal energy and ability and jurisdiction, a lot of policemen felt that they were kind of ill-equipped to handle that. There are big new weapons coming into use, the Tommy gun, the machine gun, right? You've got incredibly well-armed lawbreakers and a sense that actually a lot of law enforcement isn't able to do that as well. And then, of course, you're getting the challenge of organized crime, organized criminal gangs that in part have come out of prohibition. So, you know, Al Capone, figures like that, and then in part have kind of come out of the crisis of the depression itself. So bank robbery often had a sort of outlaw appeal, certainly for Hollywood, but also more broadly in the culture. And so Hoover understood himself to be dealing with all of these things at once. The the cultural problem of this kind of new outlaw romantic figure 
that was coming into being, but also these very practical questions. But they actually have no idea how to do this. You know, before the 30s, they had been investigators occasionally dealing with law enforcement in the sense that we might think about it. But very quickly in 1933, 34, and 35, they begin to have to learn to really shoot guns, to carry guns, to do a kind of open warfare with these new criminal organizations and figures. And it's a really hard period. They do it reasonably successfully, but many agents are shot during that period. And many of them were figures who had come into the FBI thinking, you know, this was going to be kind of a, a desk job of sorts. They were accountants, they were lawyers, and Many of them never expected to be, you know, on a highway with a gun being shot at by the most famous criminals in the United States. Could you walk through the sorts of reforms he introduces? Because I imagine he has to completely rebuild the organization so that it could do something like communicate across state lines and do weapons training, do tactical training, all these different things. So what did it look like for him to rebuild this organization to deal with the threats that he saw in the 1930s? Yeah, the 30s is a really big period of kind of institutional change for the FBI to address these new duties and problems that are coming his way. And there are all sorts of features that come into being during that period that are still very much staples of how the FBI operates. So he opens a new training school out at Quantico, not only to train his own agents, but to begin to train local police officers to combat these new forms of crime and to use FBI methods. He begins to collect crime statistics and he fights very hard to be the one collecting crime statistics. You know, the question was who ought to be in charge of this? There are a lot of people who say, you know, it should be something like the Census Bureau, someone who's not super invested in law enforcement, but Hoover actually gets control over that. And that is the basis for the uniform crime reports, the crime statistics that the FBI still puts out today. He opens a new lab that is supposed to be at the cutting edge of forensic technology. This is especially important in kidnapping cases where they're often trying to you know, deploy scientific methods to trace out clues. But the FBI really becomes a kind of pioneering force in that. Still the famous FBI lab, which has run into some problems over the years, but dates its origins here. And then he's got to teach all these guys to shoot guns and to kind of come into their own as this sort of spectacular crime fighting force. Many of the people he had hired in the 20s were college educated. They were lawyers. They were accountants. They were men that he had sort of styled as experts and not like regular cops, right? Regular cops were thought to be you know, pretty brutal and often undereducated. And he really wanted his agents to be different from that. But then in the 30s, they find themselves needing to, to be a lot more like cops to learn how to deal with not only weapons, but informants to deal with the press in new ways and found themselves in situations where they were, you know, kind of confronted with uh, both the temptations and also the challenges of dealing with organized crime. It's interesting to think that the organization evolved so quickly from accountants and lawyers that are nervously trying to put together a handgun at a shooting range and having terrible aim. That's what I'm thinking of. 
until a decade later when they're putting together some of the most effective counter espionage projects that I think U.S. intelligence has seen. Can you talk about the pivot that the organization takes in World War II and then as a Cold War builds up with the Venona operation and Solo and other operations like this? What is the impetus for them to put these together? And then what do they try to do to counteract Soviet espionage? Yeah, in the 30s, 33, 34, 35, the big challenge is this pivot toward crime, toward law enforcement, and it's a big, big change. By the late 1930s, a whole new challenge comes along, which the FBI is also not particularly well equipped to meet at first, and that is the challenge of becoming a wartime and a domestic intelligence force. You know, the United States prior to this moment had various little pockets of kind of internal intelligence. Hoover had been part of one of the first federal experiments in all of this when he was there during and after World War I. But a lot of that had been shut down. There had been a backlash to it. And so they hadn't been engaged in so much of that during the 20s and then during the early parts of the New Deal. But as the war starts to come along, you know, Franklin Roosevelt first, and then the government more broadly, turns to the FBI and says, you're going to have to deal both with domestic groups that we are worried about, communists, fascists, right? There's a real concern about the instability of the social order. And then as war becomes increasingly likely with spies and saboteurs and all of the other concerns that were coming along with the war. So Hoover has to pivot once again and kind of remake his agency as a real intelligence force. And so it's during this period that these two identities that the FBI still has today, on the one hand, a law enforcement agency, on the other hand, an intelligence agency, really become established and they last. For Hoover, there are all sorts of groups during the war that need to be addressed, groups on the right particularly the question of you know, German intelligence, German sabotage, questions about who ought to be interned and not interned. But very quickly, he comes to focus on the Communist Party as his main worry. And then that really escalates during the war and explodes once the war is over and the Cold War begins. And the FBI has some real successes and some real failures on that front. You mentioned Venona and Solo, which are two of their most important counter espionage efforts in the 40s and 50s. Venona was a program that started with the army in which the army was decoding Soviet cables, discovers that they are actually mostly, or at least in part, about intelligence and espionage matters. And so they collaborate with the FBI to begin identifying people who had worked with the Soviet Union, especially during the 1940s, who had handed over information. It's Venona that leads them to the Rosenbergs, although it's a very secret operation. And at the time, the public doesn't know anything about it. And the same with Solo. Solo was one of their great triumphs in the late 1950s. They took a couple of brothers who had been in the Communist Party, pretty important figures in the Communist Party. They were reactivated in the late 50s as FBI informants, and they went on to be 
the international representative, as well as the financial courier of funds from the Soviet Union to the Communist Party all the time, telling the FBI everything that they experienced and that they knew. So the FBI has some real triumphs during these years. It also has some real failures. Venona, for instance, we now know was infiltrated in various ways early on. So the FBI was trying to be very secretive about it. But figures like Kim Philby, famous Soviet spy, learned a lot about Venona, passed a lot of that information along to the Soviets who warned their folks in the United States. And so it was never as successful as the FBI hoped that it would be, but it did have a really dramatic impact during the 40s and 50s. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After Teddy Roosevelt's failed third-party presidential run, he thought that he would reassemble the Rough Riders for a final charge against the Germans in World War I by launching a cavalry attack against 50-caliber machine guns. Here's an interview with Bill Hazelgrove to look at this incredible story. Teddy Roosevelt was one of these people who seemed indestructible. And that's why I think a lot of Americans wanted him to go, because in a way, he was their Superman. To listen to this full interview, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. We're going to come into some of the most notorious chapters of Hoover's life with the COINTEL program. But before that, Taking a step back and looking at the big picture, since you have studied Hoover's life, you've looked at you know countless archival documents, you saw what he was facing, how would you characterize the threats he was facing and did it make sense of his heavy-handed policies? And what I mean by this is there are times when I look at certain wars in greater detail, such as World War II in the Pacific. I did a very long series with a co-host and it made a lot of sense of things such as the dropping of the atomic bomb with the challenges that the U.S. military were facing. It really does put into perspective choices made at the time. Even if you don't agree with all of them, you can at least understand the thinking behind what led to those decisions. But then there are other incidents where the decisions that are made aren't excused at the time. It could just be paranoia or brutality or heavy handedness, whatever. You can think of tin pot dictators liquidating their enemies. Based on what Hoover was facing at the time in the 1950s with the Soviet threat, where there are spies who are dealing intelligence, there are people like George Koval who successfully infiltrate the Manhattan Project and are never caught. So how much do you, I suppose, give credit or give leeway to Hoover on the axis of paranoia versus just hard-headed real politic and the person you want to send in to make the hard choices when no one else would? So how do you see him? 
He definitely had elements of both. I think there was no way that the United States was going to enter World War II and then kind of move into the Cold War without having a more developed intelligence force domestically as well as around the world. And so some of these challenges were, in fact, real. And some of the changes that happened at the FBI and elsewhere would have happened no matter what. There were real German saboteurs who came to the United States on submarines in 1942. The FBI snapped them up because one of them turned, but that was really happening. And similarly, there was real Soviet espionage, and many of the people that the FBI accused of being Soviet spies were in fact, in one manner or another, engaged in espionage, either during the war when the Soviets were our allies or after the war in things like atomic espionage. So those were real threats. And I think, you know, Hoover adapted to them pretty well in certain ways and had some real successes on those fronts, particularly when it came to targeted investigations. I think where he went wrong and where, in some sense, the the nation as a whole went wrong was in identifying the limits of those investigations much too expansively, right? In sort of sweeping into these intelligence operations, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who were simply people with radical political ideas, who were people who posed no threat to the United States, who were simply members of the Communist Party, affiliated in some vague way with an organization that was affiliated in some vague way with the left. So that swept up all sorts of people, professors and civil rights activists and labor organizers in what became one of the big features of the 40s and 50s, which was the Red Scare, which, as I said, was based in certain real concerns that were pretty urgent in that moment, but also I think went far beyond what the boundaries might have been. And I think that Hoover was responsible for a lot of that. He was a very you know, outspoken cultural figure. And he was, you know, often depicting the Communist Party as being, you know, part of an existential struggle between religiosity and atheism, between tyranny and freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And really, I think, casting the net much more widely than than was really appropriate or fair or just. That's a good segue into the co-intel program. Can you tell me about that? But also an interesting point you make that he's not a rogue actor when he brings this about. It's signed off by the executive branch, the legislative branch. So he has buy-in by everyone he needs to have buy-in from making your point that he's not this rogue figure, but sort of the id of uh, national paranoia and acting out its impulses. So can you tell me about that program? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the points that I try to make in the book in many of these phases is that while, for instance, Hoover might have been casting his net very widely, he was pretty widely supported in doing so, right? Whether you were a Democratic administration, a Republican administration, he was incredibly popular during this anti-communist period. Sometimes his approval rating was as high as 98%, which is pretty high for, you know, a public servant. And that's true of COINTELPRO to some degree as well. So COINTELPRO is, I think, most famous as the FBI's 
program of disruption and targeting aimed at left-wing groups in the 1960s. So the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, the civil rights movement. But it actually started in the late 1950s as a program aimed at the Communist Party. And it comes into being at a moment when Hoover is worried that the courts are turning against the Red Scare, limiting the FBI's ability to bring cases in court, limiting the FBI's ability to conduct the sorts of very widespread surveillance it had been engaged in. And so they say, well, what can we do now? Because we think the communist threat is still very powerful. And they come up with this program, COINTELPRO. So it stands for Counterintelligence Program. And what counterintelligence meant was, first of all, things that were going to be very, very secret. And second of all, ways of disrupting organizations that they did not like that would never see the light of day in court, went beyond simply gathering intelligence, but went into trying to sow dissent, have a lot of infighting, sending your informants in really to try to make the organization collapse from within. Some of the COINTELPRO techniques are sort of funny and interesting for anyone who has tried to be in a social movement because the FBI had these informants and they would sort of talk to their informants and they would say, just go into the meeting and try to make it really long and boring. <laughs> try to, you know, make everyone really mad at each other, split people into factions. And if you do that, you know, everything's going to collapse. They also did more nefarious things like send anonymous letters accusing people of suggesting, oh, hey, you know, leader of faction one is actually trying to get with your girlfriend, leader of faction two sending anonymous threats, planting fake news stories. And so a whole range of disruptive techniques that were supposed to be secret and were supposed to make organizations collapse from within. While it was secret, there is now good evidence, which I saw in some newly released files, that in fact, the FBI did talk to both presidents and to Congress about the fact that they were starting these counterintelligence programs they didn't always offer the details of what they were up to, but these were not actually unsanctioned programs in the way that I think we now think about COINTELPRO today. From those origins, the FBI goes on to expand in the 1960s into a lot of the groups that I already mentioned before. They target figures like Martin Luther King. They target the student left, the anti-war movement, the you know kind of Black Power movement, a whole host of groups on the left, but they also begin to use these techniques against some groups on the right, neo-Nazi organizations and the Ku Klux Klan in particular. I mean, this is a vein for both comedy, but also serious analysts. I'm wondering if there are examples of the best and the, the greatest success and also the funniest failure of COINTEL. And what I'm thinking about that is when I took a media law class in college, a professor mentioned exactly what you're talking about. And due to a Freedom of Information Act request, there was some newspaper in Iowa that found in the 1960s, there was a FBI plant at, I believe, Central College in Pella, Iowa, to survey any type of communist activity on campus, which Central College is in the town of Pella. It's a Dutch enclave. It's just the most white, wonderbred town you could ever possibly imagine. Just 
where there are Dutch celebrations and festivals every year with tulips planted. So the thought that there's subversive communist activity having there, if you ever go to central Iowa, keep that in mind. It's going to be funnier and funnier the longer as you see the, you know, brick Dutch facade on the buildings in downtown. But in your research, were there any things that stood out to you, whether, you know, it's things like that, uh, just funny examples of them putting plants in places where there's no possible threat, but then to give the program at least some perspective successes that came out of it as well. Yeah, well, Hoover was at something of a disadvantage, as you can imagine, if he's built up this whole core of, you know, professional, conservative, white men as his agent core, who all share a certain basic outlook and who all kind of look alike. <laughs> That's actually not a great recipe for either infiltration of many organizations. And Hoover actually didn't like to use his own agents as undercover figures. He liked to kind of use ordinary citizens, but also that it just didn't, you know, necessarily mean that they were going to have a real fine understanding of sort of the intricacies of left-wing politics or left-wing groups. So some of the funniest pieces that I saw in COINTELPRO were the FBI's attempts to kind of mimic the language, the sort of hipster language or the black radical language of the 1960s. And they just did a terrible job at it, right? They're trying to write these very persuasive, like, yo, uh, you know, hey, isn't it groovy if we can do that? It just, it's just kind of a disaster. They also were big believers, particularly in targeting the Klan in kind of making fun of the organizations because they thought, you know, if the Klansmen are mocked, they'll get really upset and angry. And so they actually had cartoonists at the FBI making cartoons that were then distributed to various newspapers who then published them, kind of trying to make fun of both the Klan and, and these various new left groups. But they were often shall we say, not very funny cartoons. This was not the FBI's strong suit. Despite all of that, you know, successes were there. So the FBI is actually pretty successful. I'm very angry that they can't claim credit for this because these are secret operations, but they're pretty successful at destabilizing the Klan in the 60s. They're certainly successful at disrupting and destabilizing what's left of the Communist Party. But in COINTELPRO, as in so many other forms of FBI surveillance during these years, you know, it's also true that they are really going pretty outrageously beyond the boundaries of what we might want an intelligence agency to do. They also have some really big failures when we get to the late 60s and early 70s. And they're trying to, for instance, track the weathermen, the weather underground, a kind of radical offshoot that has turned to violence from the student left. They can find almost nobody. They're really outsmarted and it really falls apart. Well, before this starts to go downhill, he is at his high watermark at the end of the 50s, which your book opens with where... Hoover is attending a premiere of the movie, I think with uh, Jimmy Stewart in it, about the FBI story. And at the end of sort of this communist purge, he's largely beloved by the public, but had he stepped down, he would have been much better remembered before he gets into the failures of the 60s and 70s. One aside, which we mentioned earlier in this discussion, is his personal life, which has 
attracted a lot of attention in more recent years, particularly his relationship with Clyde Tolson. Based on your reading of the archives, what was this and how much of it was an open secret in Washington? Yeah, the most famous story about Hoover that you mentioned earlier is this idea that he liked to wear women's clothing. And honestly, when I say that I'm writing a biography of J. Edgar Hoover, the did he really wear a dress (laughs) is one of the first questions that I always get. And the answer is, We don't know, but there is no evidence to suggest that that is true. That comes from the reporting of a journalist named Anthony Summers, who did lots of really pioneering and interesting reporting on Hoover. But in this particular case, his source for that story is a woman who claimed that she had gone with her husband to the plaza in the late 1950s for a kind of group sex adventure with Roy Cohn, (laughs) and that Hoover was there as well, dressed in women's clothing and having sex with teenage boys. So it's a scandalous and interesting story for sure, but this is also a woman who actually served time in jail for perjury. So she is not exactly, not on this matter, on a different matter, but it makes her not exactly an unimpeachable witness. And so we actually have no evidence to suggest that this is true outside of these, you know, kind of expansive rumors. But on the broader question of Hoover's personal life, his sexual life, and in particular, his relationship with Clyde Tolson, we do have a lot more evidence. So first, it's clear that Hoover never had a serious relationship, a serious romantic relationship with a woman. There were occasional suggestions that he was dating some starlet or someone else in the public eye, but it's pretty clear that those really were just for public consumption and there was nothing much going on there. The main relationship of his life was with Clyde Tolson, who he had met when Tolson was a student at GW and Hoover at George Washington University, where Hoover went and then Tolson went a few years later. So they met as young men in Washington. Hoover recruited Tolson into the Bureau in the late 20s. And really from that point on, they are each other's primary relationships, both at work and in the rest of their lives. So Tolson went on to become the associate director of the FBI, Hoover's number two. But they also spent most of their social, familial, and personal lives together. In the 30s, gossip columns are reporting them you know, out clubbing in New York until all hours of the night and reporting pretty openly that Hoover is there with his right-hand man, Clyde Tolson, that they are together, they are partying and socializing and being these kind of hot young celebrity men on the town. They become a little more subdued about the public part of their relationship as they get older and as laws and policies that are much more anti-gay, anti-homosexual come into being. And that's really in the 40s and 50s. But even then, they are, you know, really a social couple. I have them sort of double dating with Dick and Pat Nixon. You know, when you invited Hoover to dinner, you invited Clyde. They often signed their thank you notes together, Edgar and Clyde. So it's a relationship that is at once very open as a social matter. And then, of course, very secretive in other ways. We don't know what they were doing together in the bedroom. Of course, we don't even quite 
know how they felt about each other, though there are clear signs that this was, you know, a deep and abiding relationship. And of course, in the middle of all of this, Hoover became one of the people in charge of the Lavender Scare, which is the federal government's purge of its homosexual employees in the 40s and 50s. It wasn't a policy that he himself created, but it is one that he ended up enforcing, enforcing pretty aggressively in many cases, and even sending his own agents out then when there would be you know, a whisper around Washington that perhaps the director was, quote unquote, a queer. He would actually send his agents out to track down whoever had said that, to go to them and say, this is the most nefarious, scurrilous thing that you could say. It's obviously untrue. The director is the most wonderful, upstanding human being we've ever seen. And of course, that person says, oh, yeah, 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 I totally agree. Hoover's great. I'll never say it again. Scott here. One more break for a word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 and they'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger. My workouts felt easier. I slept better. I was noticeably trimmer. There was no downside. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. There's anyone who knew how to control the narrative and, you know, crush another opinion dissent, it'd be Hoover. So at least at this time in the FBI, he could have good messaging control. Well, his star falls in the 1960s. At the end of his 48 years, he's caught in the political machinations that lead to Watergate. What happens in the 60s and the early 1970s? And does public opinion turn against him at this time or does that come afterwards? Yeah, in the 1950s, he really was kind of a hero of Republicans and Democrats alike. He's enormously popular. And I think, you know, it's sort of an embodiment of what's often said about the 1950s, which was that it was an era of a certain kind of consensus. While that consensus held, 
Hoover was in the thick of it. But when you get to the 1960s and that consensus really starts to fracture and fall apart, that is also when Hoover runs into problems. So it's in the 1960s that I think our most familiar understanding of Hoover comes into being, which is that liberals and leftists in particular become very critical of him. And he remains more of a hero to conservatives, but they too are starting to become critical of certain aspects of his career. That's in part just because he's getting old. So he should have formally retired around 1964 when he turned 70, which was the mandatory federal retirement age. Lyndon Johnson, who was a pretty good friend of his, exempted him from that. And then Richard Nixon came along and kept Hoover in office as well. Hoover and Nixon were very tight. Lyndon Johnson had been his neighbor in Washington during his years as congressman and senator. So one reason that Hoover stays in office, even as his popularity begins to fall a little bit, is that he had such tight relationships with these two presidents. But as the 60s go on, all sorts of problems emerge for Hoover. He's seen as too old and no longer the kind of capable, flexible figure that people had understood him to be. His very, very aggressive attacks on the anti-war movement, the left, people like Martin Luther King, of course, are popular in certain quarters, but deeply unpopular in others. So liberals and leftists really begin to turn against him. The civil liberties ethos is beginning to change in the 1960s. And so techniques that the FBI had been using pretty openly before come to be seen as much more problematic. And then there are a series of scandals and discoveries very particular to the FBI, such as a break-in at an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, in which anti-war activists steal all of the FBI files, show just how outrageous and sometimes illegal the FBI's surveillance programs are, and those create scandals as well. All of which is to say that by the early 70s, Hoover is already falling into some disrepute, though at the moment of his death in 1972, he is still being hailed by, by Nixon and by others as this kind of great American institution and monument. But his reputation takes maybe its biggest hit a few years after his death with the hearings run by the church committee, which expose all sorts of abuses and excesses of Hoover's FBI, also of the CIA and other intelligence agencies, but really becomes the moment that Hoover begins to be seen as this disreputable rogue figure. And it's really the moment that the ways that we think about him today became solidified. Any one of the topics we've discussed could be a book in and of itself. So yeah, that was my book, actually. (laughs) It's long, but not that long. (laughs) So I hope this entices listeners to check it out. But I would like to get your take on his legacy, because the FBI today, I think there is something of a new bipartisan consensus of dislike for the FBI in the United States now. I doubt the left in its modern form has ever loved the FBI and the Stokes, or the embers were stoked once again after 9-11 with the Patriot Act and stories of FBI entrapment of different groups of people came out. But now on the right, at least, there are some that view the FBI as the secret police of Merrick Garland and the current presidential administration. So there are different reasons for different people to dislike the FBI. I can't think of a constituency that loves the FBI in its current form. But 
What do you think of Hoover's legacy and does it have any connection to the modern day FBI? Did he put himself into the DNA of the organization or has it evolved into something different? I think a lot of Hoover's DNA is still there. The FBI has changed as an institution. I mean, very quickly after Hoover's death, they began to hire women as agents. They began to hire people of color as agents. You know, they let FBI agents have slightly longer hair and things like this. So the FBI has certainly changed as an institution. And there were a number of restrictions also put in place after Hoover's death that made the FBI, I think, much more law-bound and much more constrained than it was during Hoover's lifetime when there was virtually no accountability in a formal sense for FBI operations. But I think maybe the most important parts of his legacy are that the structures that he built and the two aspects of American politics that he embodied, I think, are still very much there at the FBI. On the one hand, you know, a real belief in kind of nonpartisan objective investigations, and on the other hand, a pretty conservative institutional culture. Those, I think, are still very much there in the FBI. You know, and during Hoover's lifetime, the FBI often found itself in the kinds of circumstances that we've seen over the past couple of decades, which is, on the one hand, supposed to be standing outside of politics, supposed to be, you know, in a law enforcement agency that is conducting investigations. That's what it's for. On the other hand, drawn into all sorts of highly politicized investigations that are really difficult to navigate. And so the fact that it's kind of in that dilemma now and has been especially over the past five or six years itself is not new, although Hoover often tried to kind of handle those things behind the scenes and had a lot of concentrated power that sometimes allowed him to do it. So today, I guess what's been most interesting to me, as you say, is that you know during the last years of Hoover's life, he still was a kind of great conservative hero. But in many ways, the right has turned on the FBI as the embodiment of a kind of nefarious deep state, particularly in its investigations of Trump, you know, as far back as 2016, and then, of course, up into the present. I think actually there are many liberals who sort of like the FBI a little more than they would have expected, or at least are turning to the FBI as a kind of bulwark against Trump in particular in recent years. And that's been sort of funny to see. I've talked with many people who consider themselves liberals or leftists who say, wow, well, I never expected, you know, to think that the FBI might be the savior of the republic. But I think, you know, while they don't love a lot of what the FBI does, I do think that that has changed as well. And those are, you know, kind of reflections of these longstanding paradoxes that the FBI is both nonpartisan and has a certain politics, that the FBI is a law enforcement agency, but also intelligence agency, that it's supposed to stand apart from politics, but is constantly drawn into politics and all of those issues, as well as, of course, the really critical civil liberties questions raised by something like the Patriot Act. All of those were debated during Hoover's lifetime and in some sense are part of the shadow of Hoover that still hangs over all of us today. Well, his life gets to many of the challenges and successes and failures of what happened in the U.S. in the mid-20th century. 
And like we said earlier, there's much, much, much more we could get into because his life was so comprehensive. But for listeners who want to check out Beverly's book, the name of it is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Beverly, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, that is all for today's episode. If you'd like to see show notes for this and all my other episodes and include sources, maps, or other relevant information, go to ParthenonPodcast.com. Parthenon is the name of the podcast network that History Unplugged is a part of, along with other great history shows like James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, there are two easy ways to do so. The first is to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. This really helps the show grow. The second thing is to join our membership program on Patreon. And if you do so, you can get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog of the show, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time.